This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today, we're turning our attention to relatively recent history and to the world of music to look at the rock and pop stars commemorated with blue plaques at their former London homes. In fact, this year and this month, if you're listening in November 2021, marks 30 years since the passing of one of rock music's greatest singers, songwriters and performers. But before we introduce him, let's introduce senior historian for the Blue Plaque Scheme, Howard Spencer, who's going to talk about a cluster of stars whose former London residences proudly bear their names. Hello, Howard. Hello, Charles. So who is the first in our London rock and roll roster? Well, we're going to talk first of all about Freddie Mercury. It is 30 years since he passed away. He died on the 24th of November 1991. Hardly seems possible that it's that long ago, but it is. I remember when I got the news, actually, I was going to school and it came on on the radio and it's uh, obviously quite a shock. So how old would he have been if he were alive today? This is also showing my age, I suppose. Well, he, he would have turned 75 on the 5th of September, which again is, is pretty remarkable, really. Yeah, surprising, especially when you, you know, see Brian May still performing and he's still got his hair, albeit grey. But these rock legends, they sort of live on forever in a way. In terms of record sales, how successful have Queen been? Well, they're really up there among among the world's best. Um, Forbes magazine in, in 2018 um, revealed that Bohemian Rhapsody was the most streamed song in the world. Although actually, quite surprisingly, apparently the, the biggest selling single they did was, wasn't that one. It was another one, Bites the Dust. That was the biggest global sale in terms of singles. But yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're enormous, absolutely massive, and it, and it still goes on. But uh, we're talking about Freddie, of course, the front man. Where is his blue plaque? His blue plaques at number 22 Gladstone Avenue in Feltham, which is in far west London. It's quite close to Heathrow, where he actually uh, worked for a while. So you, you would get there by getting a, perhaps an overland train to Feltham Station. That's the way I got there myself for the unveiling. And it's a, it's a, it's a little, little walk, but uh, well worth going to have a look at the, the house, which is a very ordinary terraced house. It's a pebble-dashed house, I believe, isn't it? Sort of 1930s style. This is the thing about blue plaques. They, they adorn all sorts of buildings, grand and relatively ordinary. And this is, this is one of the, the relatively ordinary ones. And it is the furthest west of all our plaques. Wow. OK. How is he remembered then on this blue plaque? Does it give his real name? Because we know him as Freddie Mercury, but I think most people might be surprised that that wasn't his real name. No, that's right. Well, that was, that was the stage name he took actually after he, he left this address. So it does give the name that he was known by at the time, which is Fred Bulsara. The family name was Bulsara. His baptismal name was Farouk. And we did give some consideration to putting that on. But as he was universally referring to himself as Fred at the time, it seemed more appropriate on the whole to call him that. Right. So what do people see exactly? Is it a combination of the two? That's right. His headline name is obviously Freddie Mercury, because that's how history knows him. And then in parenthesis, in brackets afterwards, it says Fred Bulsara. That's, that's how we chose to do it. And that's how we would normally do it in, in such cases. So when did this blue plaque go up then? Well, it went up in 2016. So yeah, five, five years ago. And who was there to um, commemorate? I presume Brian May was there? 
Brian May did it did indeed indeed unveiled it and 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 he he was marvelous. He was he was very generous with his time. Stayed around, talked to people, signed things, and so on. Yeah, he was it, it was very good. And he had some very personal sort of recollections which which he gave. And uh, there were there were uh, members of of Freddie Mercury's family there too. And I think one of, the, one of the things that stuck out for me was just just standing, you know, in the in the in the crowd, as it were, listening, just overhearing somebody saying, well, "This is really good news for Felton because it means we'll be known for something other than the Young Offenders Institution." I, I see. Thought, well, that's that's good. We're helping. That's 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 positive. I expect it was some occasion because you know we're talking about someone who's a huge rock star in the UK and internationally as well. It must have. It was busy. I mean, I, have, I suppose I'd have to say I have been to some that, that have been even busier. I mean, I guess the out-of-the-way location and the fact that we do, I mean, we, we have to respect the owners of the buildings and so on. So there is a, there is a limited amount of pre-publicity to these things. We don't um, tend to issue all-comers invitations because that would, that would have got a bit out of hand if we'd done that. Yes, of course. I suppose it can be difficult for local traffic and the neighbours and uh, and that sort of thing. But certainly a nice photo op anyway. Um, so what brought Freddie's family to Feltham, West London, where his blue plaque eventually came to uh, be erected? Well, it's an interesting story because it, it sort of ties in with the whole sort of end of the British Empire stuff. They were from uh, Zanzibar in, in, in East, East Africa but of Asian ancestry. They were Parsis or Zoroastrians in terms of their religious observance. And what happened was in, in 1963, Zanzibar, well, Zanzibar gained its independence in the early 60s, but in 63, things, there, was a, there was a revolution, a sort of an African-led revolution, partly out of dissatisfaction, at a very unusual election result where a party that got 54% of the vote actually managed to end up with less seats than the opposition party. I'm not quite sure how that would work, but this is how the first-past-the-post system that the British left them behaved. And it led to such anger that there was this revolution led by the African party. And it became very difficult for Asians to carry on living there. It was it was just, it, life became very hard. And so that's why the Bulsara family, among many others, came to the UK. And this was in, in 1963 that they first came. And they landed up in Felton because they already had some relatives in the area, I understand. How old roughly would Freddie have been at that point when he came with his family? He was born in 46, so he was um, a teenager at that point. So that's Freddie Mercury who's got his blue plaque in Feltham in West London. The next performer that we're going to talk about came to London in a similar vein to Freddie Mercury's family. Who is this person and um, where's their blue plaque? This is Bob Marley, whose blue plaque is at 42 Oakley Street in Chelsea, which you would get to by going to the Sloan Square on the district line and uh, walking down the King's Road. And it's one of the roads that leads down to the river on the left as you're walking uh, westwards. And he's, he's got a slightly similar sort of background to Freddie Mercury in the sense that he came to London fleeing in a way. Well, that's right. On, on, on this on this occasion, I mean, he came to London several times, but this is this is where he lived when he came to London in 1977, following an attempt on his life in his native Jamaica. Somebody tried to shoot him on the 4th of December 1976, and he was spirited away, first of all, to Nassau and then on to London, which was a place that he already knew quite well. He'd already visited several times. So what was Bob Marley's kind of connection with London? We think of him as this Jamaican reggae artist, of course. You've described how he had to flee because of an attempt on his life. But um, they were familiar with the capital, weren't they? Him and the Whalers. 
That's right. Well, he'd first come along with uh, Peter Tosh and Bunny Livingston, who were the original whalers, in 1971. And they'd lived in, in Bayswater and, and then went on to live in Neasden on that occasion. And then there were further visits in, in 73, I think in 74 and 75 too. He spent some time in London during the summer. And in fact, he told the journalist uh, Vivian Goldman that he regarded London as a second home. So it really was an important place for him. And of course, on the visit that's celebrated by the Blue Plaque, this is where the occasion when he, he recorded the Exodus album, which is rated by many people as his best. You've mentioned that the plaque is at 42 Oakley Street, Chelsea, which is a very upmarket kind of area today. What was it like when Bob Marley and the Whalers were living in that particular area? Well, rather less so. I mean, it was Chelsea had always had, you know, historically, uh, 19th century, early 20th century, it was an artist's hangout. It was somewhat sort of uh, loose and left field. And it's, there was still an element of that in, in, in 77. I mean, in, in odd corners, you can still kind of find it today, but very odd corners. It's, 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 as you say, very smart these days. Can you describe the property then that they lived in and how long were they there for? There's a four-storey terrace with a basement and they were there for about six months or so. He shared it with the entire band. They were all living there. He had a bedroom on the on the top floor, I believe. But it was this was while, as I say, they were recording the Exodus album and also he was writing songs for the subsequent album, Kaya. Obviously, music wasn't Bob Marley's only passion. He, I gather, played a bit of sport while he was in London as well. That's right. Yes, I mean one one reason why this location may have been chosen, and it was it was actually sort of service department, so it was hired for him by Island Records, who were his record company. But one reason that they may have chosen it is because of its proximity to Battersea Park and its football pitches, because he was a very very keen football player, and that was very much part of the band's daily routine. They would get up at eleven in the morning in the way that musicians often do. <laughs> and the first thing they would do is, get, is go, and, go and play a bit of football before they actually got down to the business of writing and recording. OK, well, moving on to our next uh, music star with a blue plaque in London, uh, we're going to touch on somebody who was originally from Liverpool. He's one of the Fab Four, shot and killed very sadly in New York in 1980. People can probably guess who we're talking about here, and it is. It is John Lennon, of course. And I should say, actually, that he does have an English Heritage Blue plaque in Liverpool. Now, the scheme we run is Greater London only, but there were a few pilot projects that were done about 20 years ago. And if you go to his his old house in Menlove Avenue, which is the one that's open to the public by the National Trust, there is actually an English Heritage plaque on that too. So he has one in Liverpool and one in London. Quite unusual in that. Wow. OK, that's interesting. The one in London is where exactly? It's at number 34 Montague Square, which is in Marylebone, nearest tube where you to go and visit it would be Marble Arch. It's just to the north of there. What was his connection with London? Obviously, we think of him uh, and music fans will think of him very much connected to Liverpool and the northwest of England. But uh, what's the connection with London? Well, London is the main musical hub. You know, all the, all the kind of the main record companies were based here. A lot of the studios and so on. So I guess it's a it's a, it's a sort of a cultural hub. It's, it's it's being drawn to the city for that reason rather than the kind of you know the refugee status that we talked about in our, our first two cases. So that was the the reason why the Beatles as a whole actually gravitated to London. I mean, they had a a flat together at fifty seven Green Street in Mayfair. In the early days, in the early, in the early 60s, 
where they all lived and, but it was and it, this was when we when we were researching the uh, the idea of a plaque to john lennon this one was considered but it, it turned out that it was more of a crash pad than anything else i mean they were a touring band and they weren't there very often paul mccartney was quoted as saying we didn't even have a kettle there they had a hi-fi but no kettle so very much a sort of young bachelor's crash pad and, and i think lennon in particular didn't really relish that kind of living he wanted to sort of at least have a modicum of home comforts yes so how does 34 montague square in marylebone compare to mayfair that's where he that's where he lived he lived rather later on he lived there in 1968 for about five months with yoko ono and he lived there while they were recording while he was recording the the white album um, it was also where they were working on their first album, which was Unfinished Music, number one, Two Virgins, and the notorious Naked Cover Shot was actually shot in the flat. So it has has that sort of resonant connection. It has to be said that five months isn't a very long time for, in blue plaque terms, but it, it is nonetheless the longest term London address of his that still stands remarkably, because the other alternative was a block of flats in Kensington called Emperor's Gate, where he'd lived uh, in 63, 64, with Cynthia Lennon, his first wife. And that's unfortunately been demolished. I see. For people who don't know the sort of Beatles back catalogue and uh, some of the dates, this period of his life, this is almost the transitional phase between Beatles to solo work and sort of going off and living with Yoko Ono. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's quite it's quite late in the band's career. I mean, the, the tensions are starting to show, although interestingly, I mean, they're still they sort of swap pads rather a lot. I mean, for example, the uh, the place that he ended up in in Ascot, uh, which is I think was his last home before moving to New York, he, he, he bought from Ringo Starr. And in fact, Ringo Starr had also stayed at the Montague Square address. And even more spookily, so had Jimi Hendrix. Hendrix had stayed there in '66, so there was there were there were multiple rock and roll connections with that address, and I think even Paul McCartney stayed there for a while. Ah, that's fascinating. So, in terms of choosing a blue plaque location, that's quite a good one because there's a lot of stories feeding into that. And that's always part of that's what influences the choice. I mean, in this case, it really was fairly straightforward it was probably that or nothing really so it does concentrate the mind a bit but <laughs> but then nonetheless there are there are some very good stories despite the uh, fact that it was a relatively short period of residence one other thing that happened there that turned out to be rather significant was in october 68 while he's he's there he gets busted for cannabis possession which is also something that happened to bob marley while he was in Oakley street more patterns emerging yes. um but this this later on this this was used by richard nixon when he was trying to get lennon out of the us when when the anti-war activism was starting to annoy richard nixon this was dragged up so it sort of came back to haunt lennon a, a bit i see obviously john lennon has not been with us for a long time since uh, 1980 how long has the blue plaque been up then because i know that i think you have to be dead 20 years for a blue plaque to even be considered at a London property. Yeah, the, the blue plaque went up in, in 2010. So, yeah, I mean, he was, he, was, he, was he was well eligible by that point. You mentioned that uh, Jimi Hendrix has this connection to John Lennon's blue plaque property, and he's the person that we're about to talk about next. Obviously, the blue plaque scheme shows that you don't have to be British or English to be recorded with a blue plaque, do you? No, that's that's very true. I mean, as as Benjamin Disraeli said, you know, London has a roost for every bird. I mean, it's it's been an, a, 
international city for a very long time and knows absolutely no compulsion on British nationality. I mean, the, the, the oldest surviving plaque is to a Frenchman, uh, Napoleon III, the emperor. So that, that tells you something. It does. And obviously we've talked about Bob Marley from Jamaica, Jimi Hendrix from the USA. They're both attracted to London, but what's Jimi Hendrix's reason for coming to London and making it a temporary home? Well, he met Chaz Chandler, who was the bass player with the band The Animals in New York in, in 1964. And Chandler, it was, who basically persuaded him to come to London. He made it his bass. I mean, he was touring an awful lot in the life of a touring musician and so on, but it was his bass really for the rest of his life. And it has been argued that he found success perhaps a little easier to come by in Britain because it was it was it was a bit more enlightened in terms of racial politics than the United States at the time that that may not be saying a very great deal but this has been said so what happened is basically this this he made he made London his home and his blue plaque whereabouts is that if we want to visit it well that's at number 23 Brook Street in in Mayfair and um, I think you, you get to that from uh, Oxford Circus or Bond Street tubes just south of there and the reason for choosing that particular place did he have a number of residences that he could have been marked with a blue plaque that's right yes, he did have a number of different london addresses one of which i've already mentioned 34 montague square the place that bears the plaque to lennon which allegedly hendrix was asked to leave after he painted the interior walls black uh, i'm not sure how true that is it's a good story anyway but the other people might think where the plaque could, you know, should go is the Samarkand Hotel, as was in uh, Notting Hill, which is where he sadly passed away. I mean, it's not unknown for us to put plaques on the buildings where people died, but it is something we would normally seek to avoid, as they are supposed to be celebrations of somebody's life and achievement and not, not just marking where they passed away. And it wasn't anywhere that he had an enduring connection to anyway. The enduring connection was far more with 23 Brook Street, where he was in certainly in 68 and 69, and which he shared with his girlfriend, Cathy Etchingham. And he was, as far as we know, you know, happy there. It was, it was his home. He had a famous neighbour during that period in uh, between 68 and 69. Can you tell us about that? Well, that's right. And I think this, this was obviously another reason why the place was chosen, because it's an irresistible juxtaposition, really. 25 Brook Street, right next door, is the plaque to George Frederick Handel. And famously, um, uh, Hendrix was actually asked about this at the time, and he confessed that he hadn't heard much of the guy's stuff. <laughs> OK, and they are different ends of the musical spectrum, aren't they? One being classical, one being rock and roll. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure there are similarities that, that, that one could draw. But yeah, that's, that's, that's how it would normally be perceived. When was Hendrix remembered then with his blue plaque? He was given a blue plaque in 1997. Um, George Frederick Handels had, had been put up some years before by the London County Council. Although, in fact, uh, a few years afterwards, in order to get a, a better match and, and also that the Handel plaque was looking rather worn, that is now an English heritage plaque. How was uh, Hendrix's plaque going up received at the time? I think it's fair to say there was a mixed reaction. It got a lot of publicity. I mean, we, we have a paper file at the time. Of course, it was all paper filing, really. There's a lot of press coverage, positive press coverage, but also a lot of letters of complaint. Why are you putting up a, a plaque to this drug taker? Hmm. Uh, that kind of thing, which, um, well, you know, I mean, I, I suppose the, the obvious riposte to that is, well, the first plaque ever in 1866 went up to Lord Byron. 
the drug intake didn't seem to bother the society of arts then and should it really bother us now is the, the the artistic output is more to the point perhaps yes and we've already talked about two other people who have dabbled so it's not really that different is it and we're talking about 1997 so i'm quite surprised that these comments are coming through at that point well, yes, I mean, I, but it, it, it only takes a few people to write letters, I suppose. I, I've no idea whether it was concerted in any way, but there, there were an awful lot of letters of complaint. Well, we're talking about some quite recent stars today who should be quite recognisable names to at least some generations. But there are some other music stars from perhaps the early 20th century worth mentioning for their contribution to music and British and English culture. Who are they? Well, there are, there are many other singers who might be termed popular singers. I mean, clearly rock and pop is a, is a much more modern phenomenon. But I, I could mention, for example, Jenny Lind, singer also known as the Swedish Nightingale, who was a classical singer, um, but she sort of had, a, had an almost pop-like following. You could buy a snuff box, for example, with her image on it. And she was famous for her rendition of the aria, I Know That My Redeemer Liveth. And it was a sort of a, a pop-like following. And her plaque is uh, 189 Brompton Road, put up in, in 1909, so a uh, long time ago. She was around uh, about 30, 40 years before that. But it came about in an interesting way. In 1907, the clerk of the London County Council, who was a man called Lawrence Gom, noticed that there were very few plaques to women. And he wrote a report suggesting a, a number of women who he thought uh, should deserve to get a blue plaque and Jenny Lind was among them and her plaque is still there and it's still looking very fine set in a sort of a plinth above a door. Has that helped sort of um, generate more nominations for female artists since then? Well there have been I mean there's been been a much more concerted and a much more successful effort more recently to generate public nominations for women and women artists too. I mean more recently for example there there was a plaque that went up about 10, 12 years ago, to the singer Elizabeth Welch, who was a, a sort of a jazz-influenced sort of st- singer from New York. She was another woman who found life as, a, as, as an African-American singer quite difficult in the United States, pushing forward her career there, difficult, came to London and made a career here. Mm. Um, she was commemorated about 10, 12 years ago, and her plaque is also just off the Brompton Road. The um, proliferation of music obviously today has really exploded with the internet streaming downloads youtube etc people are recording into their computers at home as well music's very accessible and soon there's going to be a whole new crop of stars producing work that will echo through the ages how difficult is it going to be then for the blue plaques team to decide who gets a blue plaque well, it's 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 a it's an independent panel who actually make the decisions about who gets them. So unfortunately, that that wouldn't uh, fall to me uh, entirely or, or my successors. But it will definitely be a difficult decision. I mean, it is you know this is the era when, in the words of Andy Warhol, everyone's famous for fifteen minutes. And I suppose the trick is actually to separate out those who really are only famous for fifteen minutes and those who have a more enduring legacy. Um, I think there's probably going to have to be greater attention paid to things like the link between the person and the building and the link between the person and London. You, you wouldn't be wanting to commemorate sort of fly-by-night connections and, and it's going to have to be very selective and that's that inevitably brings in an element of subjectivity, I guess. You say that uh, the work will echo through time. Well, some of it will and some of it won't. I mean, I don't know whether you've had the experience that I've had 
recently watching some of those top of the pops uh, yeah. reruns where some of it um, sounds absolutely marvelous and possibly even better than it did then and some of it is incredibly forgettable i mean yes. the thing about the thing about pop music is is by its nature some of it is highly ephemeral uh, mm. that's not going to make a blue plaque it's the stuff that lasts it is and it's partly for this reason of course that we have this 20 year rule where somebody can't be considered until 20 years after they've become deceased which does mean it just gives time for that reputation to settle and for it to become obvious whether the reputation is durable of course a recent death that we had in the last few years is David Bowie. He's very connected to Brixton in South London. There's even now a David Bowie walking tour that you can do, which takes in his famous Ziggy Stardust mural. So clearly there's an appetite for all things Bowie, who died in 2016. Is he a possible blue plaque recipient soon? Well, he, he will have to join the queue like everybody else, I'm afraid. I mean, as in, as in he will have to wait 20 years until he can be considered so he won't be able to be considered till 2036 i mean i would think that he's someone whose reputation clearly will stand the test of time but we can never be entirely sure i mean it's it's a hard job second guessing the future absolutely and i suppose another one that you could include there would be george michael who lived i believe up in hampstead north london is that right highgate i think yes yes i mean i mean bowie's uh birthplace in Brixton, I believe, survives. I know that he has he had another address in Beckenham, which he shared with Angie in the 70s. And I, th I think that's gone. But yeah, hopefully, I mean, there will be will be possibilities. I will incidentally be turning 70 myself in 2036. So I imagine I won't <laughs> be around to help make the decision on that one. This might be a, a research job for your successor. Yeah. We'll see what happens with retirement age by then. <laughs> yes. So when this independent panel sit down and have meetings about who's going to be honoured next, how long does it normally take from a nomination to the blue plaque being created and then the whole unveiling ceremony? That must take a long time. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's incredibly variable, the amount of time it takes, because there, is, there are certain things that we can't predict, such as how long it's going to take to get the building owner to say yes. I mean, that's the major thing we, we can't predict. And we also have a, a lot of suggestions to work through. So there is a two-stage research process and it does take a while for it to get through that. I mean, we normally say about two to three years and it can take longer than that if we have a problem with getting hold of an owner of a building or something like that. I mean, some cases we have to just you know give up for a while, shelve them, take them down later, try to um, reinvigorate them and get in touch with the owner. But it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, inc it's incredibly variable and it does, it does take a while, I'm afraid. The other alternative is to look for another address, and that does happen sometimes too. But it is it is sadly quite common that we don't get replies. I mean, it's, it's less common that we get a flat no. Most people are very keen to have them. I should, should emphasise that. I mean, usually it's a much more straightforward exercise. And the good thing, of course, is that nominations are open to the general public to choose who they want to be recognised with a blue plaque in London. So for any music fans listening who want to nominate their favourite star, who is more than 20 years deceased, what can they do to get that nomination recognised by English Heritage? They can go to our website. The fastest way to get there is probably to just put English Heritage blue plaques into Google and then click on that. And there's a page called Propose a Plaque, which will take you through the process. This does involve dropping us an email just to check that somebody hasn't been proposed recently. They're not already sort of in the works, as it were. And then there is a, a simple form to fill in and then the process starts. There is unfortunately a bit of a wait at the moment before 
cases can be taken to the panel owing to COVID and other things, unfortunately. But uh, if they can start off by doing that, then, then it will happen. And lastly, Howard, could you give us a bit of a teaser to any blue plaque recipients who might be coming out later this year in 2021? Well, later this year, we only have the one more going up, which is going to be going up in the next couple of weeks. I can, on the theme of this podcast, though, tell you that the panel that selects who gets a plaque meets three times a year. They met last week. They did select a very interesting person in the field that we've just been talking about with a very strong London connection. So watch this space. I can't say any more at the moment because I don't want to hex it. Absolutely. You don't want to get in trouble with your superiors either, I suppose. Okay, well, we we will look out for that one. And um, hopefully we can do a podcast on that person, whoever they are, after it happens. Hope so very much so. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more about Bob Marley's blue plaque, just listen to episode 27. Next week, we'll tell the story of Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, who built Dunstanborough Castle in Northumberland, and how a royal feud made him one of the most controversial figures of his day. The fact that Thomas had paid for this with his life, the word martyr could be used and was used. Thanks for listening. See you next time.